Our text, as is announced in your bulletin, is the verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. You will notice, beloved, that in the first verse of this chapter, that is the verse that immediately precedes our text, the apostle says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. And here, of course, the Apostle begins to unfold the glorious truth concerning our becoming children of God. The idea that is suggested in the last part of chapter 2, and it is for that reason that we also read that portion, is that we are born again of him, of him who is righteous. And that means that we are now become the children of God. And the apostle in the first verse of this chapter calls our attention to the wonder of the love of God that is the power whereby we have become such children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. That word behold there is not a mere interjection, but it is an imperative. And undoubtedly the intention of the apostle is that that love of which he is speaking is so great that it commands your and my complete attention. Behold. That means look at it. Look at it from every possible side, from every possible aspect. And then, behold, what manner of love that is. That means, in the first place, what kind of love it is. That is, its quality, the quality of that love. And then, also the quantity of that love. Behold, how great is that love, and what is the nature of that love of God, which is that power of God that makes us to become the sons of God. That we should be called not sons as we have it in the translation here. No, that is true. We are also the sons of God. <clears throat> but if that were the case, we were to understand here that we are sons of God, it would be looking at our uh, position from the point of view of the legal position of justification and of adoption. And that would mean that we have become the sons of God legally and therefore heirs with Christ of the inheritance which the Father has laid up in store for us. Now, that certainly is a scriptural truth. But that's not the idea that the Apostle has in mind here. He's not stressing our sonship. 
But he is emphasizing the fact that we are born again from above and that spiritually, spiritually we have become the children of God. And that doesn't mean merely that we have had the name of God named over us so that we are named God's children, but we are called to be, and that means efficaciously. Once we were not, you understand, historically, we were children of darkness and children of wrath. We were sinners. That's what the apostle has been talking about in chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we're liars. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to impute unto us righteousness. We're sinners. We were conceived and born in sin. And what a marvelous thing it is that God has made those who were by nature children of darkness and of wrath, who were nothing more than sinners, through the new birth, to become children of God. Now in the text, which we have under consideration this morning, the apostle develops this marvelous truth by stressing the following facts. First of all, that we are children of God now. Now are we the sons of God. That's sometime in the future, but right now, at this very moment, in this present time, we are the children of God. The original text of verse 1 also brings this out very clearly. I'm sorry about it that this translation does not really do justice to the original text. You read in the original, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, which we are, which we are. Which we are is left out of the translation here. But that idea is picked up in our text when the apostle says, Now are we the children of God. You get the point. We are that at the very moment, at this present time. In the second place, the text also stresses the truth, the fact that it is not yet clear, it does not yet appear what we shall be. And that must seem to imply that though we are children of God now, it does not yet become evident to us. It is not clear to us. We do not see this childrenship, if I may use that word, in all of its final and glorious perfection. We don't see that yet. But in the third place, the text also emphasizes, we know that when he, that is, Christ, the God of our salvation, shall appear, and that must mean, of course, at the end of history, at the end of the world, when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And that must mean, then, that our childhood will have reached that point to which we now are not able to see. 
It is not yet able, we are not yet able to see that childhoodness in all of its fullness and perfection. But we will then when he shall appear. And finally, the text emphasizes the fact that everyone that has that hope in him, that is, the hope of being like unto him in his coming, purifies himself even as he is pure. You understand our text, therefore, stresses the truth concerning the hope of God's children, and to that I want to call your attention for the little time we have left. The hope of God's children. And as noted in your bulletin, the three points are its rich content, its certified possession, and its sanctifying influence. <coughs> contents of the hope is that we shall be like him. And that is God. Not to understand in the sense in which Satan addressed our first parents in the Garden of Paradise. You may recall from the Genesis narrative, chapter 3, verse 5, that Satan said this to the woman. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, that your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God knowing good and evil. <clears throat> when the devil said that to the woman, he meant you will become as God. And you understand, beloved, <clears throat> that is forever a lie. No one shall ever be come as God. Why not? Because God is God. He's all alone. He's unique. He is exalted. And between God and us, there is a great chasm that can never be spanned. Job was very sensitive to this when he said, Who by searching can find out God? And the answer to that is, No one. He's a great deep. He is the holy other. He is God. And the creature, even though there is a great future for him, can never become the creator. That's what the devil wanted the woman to believe. You will become as God. Knowing good and evil. And that means you will be sitting or standing in the position of God. And you will be God. That's the secret desire of every sinful, corrupt man and of the father of lies himself to be as God. I don't want to digress this morning too much. But probably that was exactly the sin of the devil in the first place. He had an exalted place in the angelic world, ahead of all the angels, described in terms of Lucifer, the shining bright one, 
But he wasn't happy with that exalted place. He wanted to be God. And undoubtedly, though the Bible does not explain to us the fall in the angel world, it simply states the fact, this may very well have been the evil thought that was in the heart of Satan to exalt himself to be as God. And that lie he tried to inject, inculcate into the mind and heart of man at the very beginning. He shall be as God. Now, I reiterate, this cannot possibly be the idea of our text. You understand? We will not become God. That's not the intention. But undoubtedly, we must understand here, beloved, that we shall be like him in a creature sense of the word. And something of that we see already in the creation. When God created man, he created him in his image, in his likeness. And that means as you well know, that he was so created that in a creature way he could reflect the virtues, the attributes of God. In a creature way. God saw to it that in man, as he came forth from the hand of the Creator, there was a creature reflection of the wonders, the beauties of God himself. But man lost that image. He lost that likeness. He took on him the image of the devil. Now it is the purpose and the work of grace, beloved, to recreate that image. God sees to it that that creature which he originally created in his image is through recreation, through rebirth, once more become a wonderful reflector of the glories and the perfections of God, the highest of the creatures. Is this. Not the angels, but man. And when man is exalted unto the highest pinnacle, which in the end is above angels and powers and principalities, then there you will see the highest possible manifestation of the image of God. We shall be like him. No more, of course, to fall away and to lose that power and that grace and that image, but to remain in it forever. Always keep in mind, of course, that also then there will be a great gap between God and man, between the creator and the creature. He is simply only, always, and eternally the reflection, the creature reflection of God. Now that's our hope. Hope, beloved, is certain longing and expectation. And a certain knowledge and assurance. When the text speaks of hope, and this is true throughout all of Scripture, beloved, and it doesn't have in mind hope in the sense in which you and I are accustomed to using. You and I, when we use the word hope, almost invariably 
go like this. If I say to you, ladies, are you going to wash tomorrow? Are you going to hang up your wash outdoors tomorrow? I hope so. And you mean, I don't know. It's very well possible we have three feet of snow and a big snowstorm tomorrow. We don't know a thing about it. But I hope so. That's the way we use the word hope. The word hope, as we use it, always has in it an element of doubt. That's never true in the Scripture. When the Word of God uses the term hope, and it does that so often, you know, in fact, the epistle of Peter is called the epistle of hope. John 2 uses the term hope. It is always a certain hearty confidence, assurance. If I say, for example, I have as an object of my hope the in eternal inheritance that is laid up in heaven for me, which is preserved for me, and for which I also am preserved, as Peter tells us, then that inheritance is there absolutely sure. There is no question about it. I can't see it. I can't put my fingers on it. I can't taste it, but I know it. I hope. That's the idea of hope. It's an expectation that uh, a longing for something that is absolutely realistic. And that which is realistic here is that we shall be as God. That's the hope of all God's children. David, for example, says this in Psalm 17, verse 5, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Isn't that beautiful? I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. That was his hope. Job says this, Job 19, 26 and 27, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh, it may mean without my flesh, shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself. And mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. That was his hope. And this is precisely what John is saying here. This is the hope of all God's children. They're going to be like God. In the highest possible creature sense of the word. And if you can understand this, beloved, then you must also understand also in regard to this hope that there is connected with it a certain tension. Certain tension. And by that I mean that which is our holy objective is a drawing power. It draws us. It draws us to itself. That hope is a drawing power. It draws us to, to heaven, to the, to the finality of God's work of grace. You know, it is said one time uh, a little boy was flying his kite, and an old gent came along and he said, What you doing, sonny? He said, I'm flying my kite. It was a windy day, of course, and the wind had taken his kite out of sight. He says, that's funny. I don't see any kite. Oh, he said, but I feel the pull. I feel the pull. And you know, that's what hope does too. You can't see it. But it's 
It pulls on you. There's a tension. A drawing uh, to the object we shall be like unto God. The power that pulls us, you see. But then I speak of tension, you know, that, that works both ways. There's uh, also tension down here. I have flesh in which I dwell. That doesn't want to be like God. It gives me all kinds of trouble. I'll talk about that when I get to my last point this morning. And so, that flesh is pulling the other way. And so we have this. While the hope is pulling me this way, my old man and my sinful nature is pulling this way. And this is our experience today. That's how we experience this hope. And we have that hope set before us in God's Word. And you know, the light of heaven shines into this Word of God. And so, I look at that hope as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, as in a darkened glass. It's a little bit obscured yet. There's the darkness of this present. That's the way I have to look at that hope now. It's wonderful, I tell you. The more you look at it, we'll see that in a moment, the more we're transformed into children of God. The only means in which you and I can be transformed into the image of God is through the power of the Word and the Spirit as He operates in us. But you know, when you look at that hope now, you have to look at it in a darkened glass. But presently we're going to be turned around and the book will be taken away. We don't need the Bible anymore when we get to glory. We will see Him face to face. then all the tension is gone that we now experience. And He will embrace us and say unto us, Come ye blessed, my beloved. That's the way the text addresses us too, doesn't it? Beloved, my beloved, you are now like unto me in the highest possible creatural sense of the term. And I said, beloved, that this is a certified possession. That means this isn't something mystical and uh, perhaps even fictitious, something that is awful nice to think about, but we're not so awful sure that it's true. Oh, I tell you, beloved, when we preachers have to preach the gospel, we don't have to come and leave you in despair and in jeopardy, you know. We can tell you the truth. And the reason why you understand it that way is because that truth is in you. It dwells in you. It abides in your heart. You understand it. And that's why the apostle says here in the text, Now are we the children of God. We are that now. If that weren't the case, then you couldn't hope, don't you see? You couldn't have any assurance that when Christ appears, as He will, He will appear. Not just simply reveal Himself, but He will be manifested, that's what the text says, when he shall appear. That word appear there, of course, (coughs) uh, is an active thing. The word is not manifestation, but appearance, revelation. Manifestation is simply 
a cloth over a statue, for example, that you, you pull the cloth away and you have the unveiling of the statue. That's, that's manifestation. The, the object is, is dead. But in the case of appearance, you have active manifestation. Uh, for example, when the sun pierces through the clouds and you see the light of the sun piercing through the clouds, that is the idea of appearance. The Son of God, God in Jesus, is going to appear. He's going to come actively to reveal himself. And when he shall reveal himself, at that very moment, we will be like him. But how do I know that I will be like him then? Because I know that I am a child of God now. Notice that. Now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We know that. We know that we are children of God because the testimony of the Spirit the spirit of regeneration testifies with our spirits that we are the children of God. Paul says that in Romans 8. Nobody can take that away from me. You can't see that. You can't see that. You can't see that until I confess that. Until I live that, I show that in my walk. But that's what I am. I'm a child of God. I've been born again from above. You have too. You're children of God. You have the life of Jesus in you. The life of the resurrection is in you. You have immortality, that is, life that cannot be overcome by death. You, you, you know that, don't you? Does your minister and elder have to come and ask you, are you children of God? And then you say, I hope so. I hope so, I mean, I don't know. Shame on you, if that's the case. And the minister must say to you, what's the matter with you, man? What's the matter with you? Don't you know? You must know. You will know if you are a born-again child of God, if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. The spirit that testifies with your spirit, he always does that, you know. He doesn't, he doesn't just dwell in you like, uh, like, uh, water in a vessel. We're living, rational, moral, spiritual, conscious creatures in whom he dwells, who have spirits who have a mind, sanctified mind, that knows. That's what the apostles say. Now are we the children of God. So we have something that is already certified in us, stamped in us. And not only that we are now the children of God, but we know this. The apostle says that too. He talks about knowledge here. But we know that when he shall appear. That doesn't mean we're going to know sometime in the future when we get to heaven. Then we're going to find that out. Oh no. We know that now. And that's what's so wonderful about my text, beloved. The word of God in the text here is, we have something substantial now. We know. We know by revelation. God has revealed himself unto us. Oh, it is true. 
We have to look into the mirror of God's Word as into a darkened glass. We don't see yet face to face. We see with many imperfections. My knowledge has not yet developed to its perfection either. You know, that's why we grow in grace and in knowledge. That's something so wonderful too, you know. I just happened to be a minister that had been with the church for over 15 years straight. And I'm telling you, after a while, you begin to know God's people. There's something that isn't nice about that, but there's also something very nice about it. Don't, don't fool me anymore. You don't fool me anymore. I know. I know who are God's people. How do I know that? Because they know. And how do they know? They know through the preaching of God's Word. They are bathed in the light of revelation. They've grown in the knowledge of this. And oh, I'm telling you, this is one of the most wonderful and glorious aspects of the ministry. You students will find this out when you get in the ministry. All those little children, and let me tell you something, you know, I don't care how old you get, Mr. De Young. I don't care how old you get, you're still a child. You know? We never get so that we are fathers and mothers when we get to heaven. We still remain children. Isn't that strange? We're always addressed. We're dressed here as children. You're only children. You never grow up so that you are no longer children. You remain God's children. And all that is so wonderful because He alone is Father. Don't you see? He is Father who has a family and He wants His family to be gathered about Him. That's the whole idea of God's covenant. That is the work of His grace in us. He makes us to become His Covenant children who will abide in his house and reflect his perfections. I know that. That's not just simply an intellectual knowledge. That's a spiritual knowledge of faith, which is very closely connected to my hope. You see... This is our certified possession. It is true, of course, that we do not know perfectly. <coughs> That's why there is always room for growth and development. And this is what you expect, too. If once you have the knowledge that you are a child of God, then it lies in the very nature of that spiritual operation that calls you to be such that it moves you to reach for the highest possible perfection of this truth, which is the object of our hope. Now the Apostle says, if this is what you know, and this is what you are now, and you claim to possess this, that you are children of God, and you know this, then this is the way that you are going to walk and to live. Everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. That's sanctification, you understand? Everyone that has this hope is busy purifying himself. Now, we must not come to any kind of a conclusion that sanctification is our work. 
The apostle doesn't mean that. All the work of salvation, including sanctification, is of God from beginning to end. You all understand that, of course. But sanctification is that work of grace in us whereby he operates within us consciously and in such a way that we respond. So when God says, be holy, for I am holy, the child of God responds by walking in sanctification. He loves God. He loves his law, his word, his precept. And that means negatively that he separates himself from the world and from corruption. He learns to hate his own flesh. He hates sin. With all that is in him, he hates it. He doesn't love sin anymore. Understand? I'm talking about the regenerated, born-again child of God. That which is born of God sinneth not. This same apostle writes in this epistle. He cannot sin because he's born of God. That which is holy and which is of God does not sin. It cannot sin. But I have that holiness in flesh that is sinful and corrupt. And therefore, that holiness which is in within me hates my flesh. It hates sin that my flesh perpetrates and perform. And positively, I'm consecrated unto God. Dedicated to Him. I have learned, as we have expressed it so beautifully in the Catechism in Lord's Day 1, I am not my own. I don't belong to myself. But I belong to a faithful Savior. He's got a claim on me. Him I must serve. Him I must seek. His will I must do. That's the positive aspect of sanctification. Everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself. That means constantly he is busy in the grace of sanctification. And so long as we dwell in the flesh, in this present evil world... This operation must obtain. It must be realized in the life of every child of God. And that must mean, too, beloved, that we are living constantly and continuously in the light of God's holy word. And the more I look into the mirror of God's word, and I see myself in that mirror, not only Christ, revealed in there, but I see also myself. Then I see all of the dirty smudges that are still manifest in my flesh. And I see cleansing because behind that awful picture is the image of the Son of God into whose image I must be transformed. And by looking into that mirror, from grace to grace, I am transformed into the image of Christ. So that when He shall appear at that very moment, I will be like Him. 
I won't have to go through school. I won't have to go through another process after he comes so that I get rid of all of my corruption and evil and old nature and all of that. Oh, no. That'll all be done. When he comes, he's going to see me as the perfect reflection of himself. That's why he's going to recognize us too, don't you see? He said, come, my blessed, enter into the kingdom that has been prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. He knows you. Why does he know you? Because he can see you and see himself in you. And I'm telling you, beloved, that's what preaching is all about. I said that to my own congregation quite recently, and in the last two years I've been calling attention to this. You know what preaching is all about? It is to get God's people ready for the coming of Christ, so that when he comes, we'll be ready. And that means we'll be like him. That's what it's all about. When you get in your society life, that's what you talk about. Come on, brethren. None of that silly stuff. Get rid of the crazy stuff. We are here because we are being in God's factory molded and fashioned after His will. We're being changed into His image. You see? Oh, I tell you, this puts an entirely different color. Even when you visit with each other, you know, we can sit Sunday nights and blab and blab about this and that and everything under the sun, about airplanes and tractors and cars. And we don't talk very much about, uh, I see, you are a child of God, do we? We're almost ashamed of it, isn't that funny? We're almost ashamed to tell one another we're children of God. And we're almost ashamed to say, Brother, I am so glad that I visited with you tonight because I have seen in you what I want to be so badly, a child of God. You see what this is going to do to you? If you have this hope in you, and I don't doubt that you do, you want to confess that this morning, don't you? You have this hope in you that when he appears, you'll be like him. All right, then, if that's the case, then you will be walking consciously and constantly in sanctification. And this is an urgent calling, you understand? Notice how the apostle says that. Everyone, and that means let everyone, let everyone that has this hope in him, purify himself. This is very urgent. This is a constant calling. We are to be spiritually and actively engaged in nothing else. That means tomorrow morning when you go to work, you don't separate the Sabbath from your daily mundane calling in the shop or in the store or the school, whatever the case may be. We don't have any division of life. There are no departments of life. So that we have one day in seven when we are holy and the rest of the day and the rest of the week we live like the devil. That's not true. We have Sabbath every day. And tomorrow morning when you go to work, you are walking in sanctification without which no man, Peter tells us, or the writer to the Hebrew tells us, we shall see God. If there is no walk in sanctification, don't ever say to me or to anyone else, you have this hope in you. You don't. If you don't walk in sanctification, you have no hope. And if you have no hope, you are not children of God. That's the clear, evident truth of the Scriptures. John approaches the church here, and God approaches us this morning with this positive truth. My beloved, 
You have hope. And you have hope because you're children of God. You've been born again. But it isn't evident yet what you're going to be. When you really become children of God, and I'm sure none of us right now can even imagine what that's going to be like. I can't even imagine what that's going to be like. That I don't have to drag around this 185 pounds of flesh that's so thoroughly corrupt. I don't know what that's going to be like. I can't even imagine the chap. But I know, I know that when he shall appear, by his sovereign mercy and grace, I'll be like him. For I shall see him as he is. And he will recognize me too because he will see all of his wonder work of grace that has been shed on me, revealed in all of its perfection. Isn't that going to be something, beloved? You look forward to that day, then you walk as children of the light in sanctification by the power of sovereign mercy. Amen. Our Father, we give unto thee thanks for thy blessed word as well as the blessed hope of thy children. We thank thee that even now we may have this confidence that we are thy children. And know that when thou shalt appear, we will be like thee in eternal perfection. Give us grace, O Lord, to live that way. Also tomorrow, and all the other tomorrows that must follow until Jesus comes. Sanctify us by thy word and spirit, and lead us in the way everlasting. And unto thee we shall give the praise, now and forever. Amen. You look forward to that day, then you walk as children of the light, in sanctification, by the power of sovereign mercy. Amen. Our Father, we give unto thee thanks for thy blessed word as well as the blessed hope of thy children. We thank thee that even now we may have this confidence that we are thy children. And know that when thou shalt appear, we will be like thee in eternal perfection. Give us grace, O Lord, to live that way. Also tomorrow, and all the other tomorrows that must follow until Jesus comes. Sanctify us by thy word and spirit, and lead us in the way everlasting. And unto thee we shall give the praise now and forever. Amen.